Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also, if you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamspokenmirrors.com. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Taking us behind the scenes this week is someone who is so multi-talented, it frankly makes you sick. She is an entertainer, stand-up comedian, poet, musician, painter, designer, handicraft expert, photographer, Coronation Street and sitcom actress. She has written comedy material for and performed with, among the many, Paul O'Grady, and Peter Kay. Yes, Paula Grady and Peter Kay. And does it get any better than that? Please welcome the remarkable and versatile, versatile talent that is Jane Tunnicliffe. Jane, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I sound unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it's, it's great to be dealing with a, a proper professional performer because as you would have gathered from that intro with me fluffing and stumbling over the words that I've written and look, read many many times to myself that I'm not a performer I've always been behind the scenes and it's important with this podcast to take you behind the scenes as well because I'm fascinated by by your life which is from my point of view remarkable because you would never say that you're a headline performer but I would contend that you've been a, a significant presence in everything you've ever done. I feel a little bit like um, the you know that June Whitfield called her autobiography and June Whitfield <laughs> dot, 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 and June it's a little bit like that sometimes. I, I've been a bit part player and a sidekick many many times, which I don't mind as long as I'm in it. <laughs> I don't really yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely, and that's the thing, isn't it? Because where to start with you? I mean, your laundry list of skills and talents is, it took me 20 seconds to read it all out. So, I, <laughs> let, so let's start with, with Paul O'Grady, shall we, with Lily Savage. Yeah. Um, how did you first come across Lily? Um, I'd heard of, I was doing cabaret um, sort of through the, throughout the 90s, and um, Lily was kind of a name that was cropping up at festivals and, you know, cabaret and things. So I'd heard of her, not really into the drag scene or knew much about drag at all. And then there was an advert in the stage, which I used to get every week, and it said, do you want to be part of a show that is half wheel tappers and shunters and half Coronation Street? I thought that was fascinating. So sent off, you know, got asked for an audition at Warrington Power Hall, which I'd actually performed at before with Phil Cool as a, as a support act in the 80s. Um, so I was quite comfortable there. Got home, got the second audition at Granada Television, Key Street, the old Corrie and big Granada building in Manchester. Um, went into the audition, got in the lift, and a very tall, blonde, good-looking guy got in all in black and went what floor do you want and I went oh are you Lily and I went yeah you're the belly dancer 
And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm Mary on Facebook, you know, stand up. And so I knew he was there. So that was my first meeting of Paul in the lift at Granada Television. So I knew he was then there behind the black curtain in the studio for the audition. And at the end of my little five minute, 10 minute slot, I heard him say, oh, yeah, we'll have her. So I knew I'd got I'd got that the thing the Lily Drone. So that was lovely. So I actually met him in the lift by chance. And that was the God of Comedy smiling on you, wasn't it? Saying, yes. okay, and this is Paul O'Grady. He's here. You He's know. here. Yeah. So up yeah. your game. Yeah. You, mentioned, you mentioned Mary Unfaithful, the character you created. Let's just hold on that for a second, because was that a stage persona you, you created for your stand-up routine? It was more of a name than anything. And it was kind of, she was kind of 60s to start with. So she'd have like a checkered coat on um, and always a mini skirt and boots and things like that. It was just a look. And because I, I, I because I'd kind of grown up with that kind of working class social club um, comedians kind of thing, somebody would come on and they'd have a suit on, you know, the blokes would have a suit on and a tie on, probably a dicky bow. Um, I hated that thing of alternative comedy when people shambled on in a scruffy T-shirt. Mm. So I always wanted an outfit you know a kind of look a look that yeah. people would remember a bit like Lily you know unbeknownst to me Lily was kind of similar we had very similar images so it was very much the kind of northern kitchen sink Kathy come home smashing time Rita Tushingham yeah. look so she wasn't a rock chick she was nothing to do with Marianne Faithful although I loved the stones and all that era hmm. born in 67 so I think you're always fascinated with the decade that you're born in um so she wasn't really a persona she was just it was a look and a name and it was just a bit of wordplay makes me cringe now and i've been told it's a it's a cringy name but at the time it it seemed to get attention you know sure i mean i i, would, I dispute there's a cringy name because i think the name it it it, it saves you 16 pages of dialogue of explanation because yes, you see that name yeah. you know exactly what you're going to get and you cut to the yeah. chase it's, it's rather like in a western when when a cowboy comes in wearing a dark hat yes. black hat you, you know he's the villain yeah. Exactly. So it kind of t it kind of rooted me in the 60s. And then the look rooted me in that kind of, you know, northern PVC kind of clad, <laughs> bit rough, maybe off an estate, you know, mm. um, very much, you know, like Shane Meadows, this is England, this is, yeah. you know, that kind of character. So very working class, very kitchen sink. Mm. And it was that more than Marianne Faithful and the Stones that I was going for. But I did love that, that era, you know, I, I love all all kinds of music but 50s 60s 70s is my favorite and so, so that show you auditioned for that was yeah. live from the lily drone yes it was and so i got called to uh to, to perform at that and it was at leighton institute it was a big social club i don't know if you've ever been in Man in blackpool mm. on the outskirts of blackpool massive one of those great old clubs with a huge concert room uh, and so the story was that lily savage had inherited this club from a dead relative um and was desperately trying to run it but very badly it had a barmaid who was Susie Birchall from Corrie Cheryl Murray had a cleaner who was a great actress we've got a name actually um so she had staff um and um, but she had she had cabaret on because it was it was a social club so she'd have various musical acts and various comedians every week but she'd be the, the hostess um and so so it was a real Blackpool audience who would have gone to the Leighton Institute, you know, and actually I won't name names, but some of the comedians that were on were from the so-called alternative circuit. One of them in particular, a male, had a really bad time. Uh, really, the audience really didn't take to him. I'll tell you afterwards who it was. <laughs> apparently really had a really bad time, didn't witness it. But anyway, so on the show I was on, it was uh, the musical acts were Odyssey, 
the New York um, yeah. disco duo, who were lovely people, and George Nelly and John, John Chilton's Feet Warmers, who wow. I was delighted with because I'd read all his books. And he wrote the screenplay to Smashing Time, the Kitchen Sink film. So yeah. I got to chat with him backstage. That was just a joy. And because I played the banjo there was a bit of a jazz connection. So I had a really, really lovely sort of hour-long chat with him backstage. But it was like a masterclass in itself, you yeah. know. Um, and and then and Paul Paul came up with this idea that Dana, the singer, had, had let them down. And so he was sort of, uh, as Lily, in the toilets, just really ranting at the mirror, going, oh, you know, as he does. Um, and then heard, heard somebody singing all kinds of everything. And I, I was the toilet cleaner, and he heard me singing that, knocked on the door and said, excuse me, have you ever been on stage? No. Well, would you want to? All right, then. And pulled me through. Stood at the side of the stage with, with Lily, who was obviously, you know, seven foot six. You, you've met, him, met mm. her in full flow. She's really quite intimidating, you know. So at the side of the stage with my banjo and my leopard print coat on. And, uh, and Lily said, uh, you're going to go out there, a youngster, but you're going to come back a star. So I did my thing. And, of course, the, the whole thing was at the end. It, um, I did, um, so it's songs and one-liners, basically, but I did George Formby and the Sex Pistols. So it's called An Anarchy in the Ukulele. <laughs> Um, and the last line was, I'm a smug little bugger, though I say it myself, and I don't go breaking windows or something like that. So, of course, I said bugger. So Lily came back on and went, oh, I'm awful, sorry. Uh, you know, the Union of Catholic Mothers are sitting there with a the face like a smacked arse because they expected <laughs> Dana. So that was the whole thing. It just set me up to be Dana, and then I was really rude, quite rude. <laughs> and, and Mary's rapport, Mary Unfaithful's rapport with Lily Savage was incredible, wasn't it? More so yeah. than, than any rapport I've seen Lily have engaged with another oh, character. I think with, with Gail Tuesday, because Gail, I have to give credit to Brenda Gilhooley, because she she was she worked with Paul a lot a lot earlier than I did on uh, yeah. Late Night uh, Channel 4. <laughs> but, um, you, know, she, you know, Gail had a, a similar character again. You know, she's kind of like a rough Essex girl in a way, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we, we did have, um, basically, Lily was like the, the, the madam, and I was one of the working girls at the brothel, you know, so she was all full of advice, like, keep your hand on your apron and don't do anything for free, you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing. So it was just that, and I'd still call her my, my madam, you know. She's Brilliant. madam of a brothel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even then, Paul O'Grady was, uh, was, well, was a genius, wasn't he? Absolutely. I mean, I luckily got, obviously got to know him very well. And mm. um, he, um, uh, really strangely, I lived in Saltaire in one of the terraced houses and he got a, he bought a flat in one of the converted mill um, complexes. And I didn't know at first. This was a few years after Lily Drove. And then we, we reconnected. Yeah. It was just bizarre. We'd both, both chosen the same village <laughs> to live in, even though he lived down south still. He just he bought a kind of a holiday home in Bradford. You know, nobody lets him forget that. Yeah. <laughs> people go to Spain now, you get one in Bradford. Um, but yeah, it was fantastic. So I spent many happy times in uh, Fanny's alehouse and then back at his flat with Buster the dog and playing the trumpet and getting a lift home on the milk float at four in the morning. Yeah. You know, Waking fantastic. up with a skip. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but I got to see him a lot um, at the Alhambra as Lily uh, doing mm. stand up, which was just one uh, the, the first time I saw him do that. Um, as an audience member, I just couldn't catch my breath. Just couldn't catch my breath. There was so many laughs that the hit rate was like, you know, probably six and six every 20 seconds. Or yes. something. It was unbelievable. Yeah. You know. That was what I loved about Lily. It was the strike rate and it was that relentless yeah. onslaught of, of comedy. Yeah. And 
and to a certain extent, I suppose that's Paul, really, isn't it? He is yes, like that. He is like that. He is that is genuinely Paul. Um, jumping ahead a little bit here, but when um, so after the Lily Drove, um, Brendan Murphy, who was Paul's manager, um, came up to me and said, "Would would you like to um, be our kind of standby support act for Lily on tour? Lily's on tour at the moment. This was about 95, 1995. and they had Gail Tuesday as as a support act. As it turns out, Gail, uh, Brenda was ill. Um, and so they, they called me and said, come to Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough Town Hall, you're on with you're the opening act for, for Lily. So we did that. And then the next night we did the Time Theatre in Newcastle and it was my birthday. Um, and so I spent the whole night after the show with Paul and Brendan in the bar of the hotel, just getting to know them really well. It was just an education. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> and, um, and and then the Liverpool Empire to finish to finish with, which was stunning. Brilliant, stunning. Brilliant. Yeah, what a so, wonderful experience. Just, I mean, really life changing. Absolutely yeah, life changing. Sure. Yeah. And I, I always thought, sticking with Paul, if we may, please. Yeah. I always thought that Paul's decision to cast off the the leopard skin heels and hang the wig onto a mannequin head in the corner and then come out come out wrong expression yeah, yeah. uh I, I, come come in okay yeah, as yeah. paul o'grady yeah i remember thinking oh boy that's a gamble possibly yes i think maybe maybe for a short while but i mean, I, th- I think people i mean there are people that love paul that don't know lily mm, now so yes, you course. know it's, it's just i think paul always looked at people like graham norton who was always himself and then mm. and had his own chat show and thought i don't need to do this anymore you know it was the kind of the Vauxhall tavern and all the years of drag and everything that he did the cabaret was, yeah. it was a way in for him and it was kind of a peg to to sort of hang hang his a persona on and he didn't he didn't need it because paul is paul and paul is lily mm. you know it was just it was just paul with a wig on <laughs> yes know? yes yes it was and yeah. what i love about paul o'grady is is that eloquence that he's got his use of words is brilliant yeah. that kind of argo of the street it's yes. proper work proper northern working class yeah. attitudes but clever but streetwise mm, streetwise yeah. Ever. yeah and those yeah. references he makes and that's the great thing i think about his radio show on radio too it, it's what alan jeddicote was saying the other day on the podcast the other week on the podcast he said that w- with some djs the the records are incidental you want the music to be over so you can get to to the dj yes. and hear what they're going to say next that's so much the case with paul isn't it Absolutely. I, I think that when I listen to it every time, I think I'll get back to the chat, please. <laughs> you know, yeah. I always want to hear him chatting. Yeah. And it's yeah, Paul's speed, isn't it? It's his speed of thought because yeah. Paul will say something on the radio. Something will happen on the radio that Malcolm Prince, his producer, might have said. Um, Paul will. Now, I will think, oh, here's an idea, here's a comedy idea. I would probably go down. By which time I'm thinking that Paul said, what I might have yeah. thought yes. immediately, yeah. then extended it by two or three thoughts. Yes, yeah, just a just a lightning comedy brain. Yeah. Just like I mean, jumping ahead again, but Lily Live, which was from two thousand, which I was the writer on and performer on. Mm. Um, we got to rehearse the, the day before the show. Did go out live on the Friday night mm. to start with, and we got to rehearse. Um, sketches and things um, at Brixton, um, big big dance studio there. Mm. And Paul would come in, and I would just be scribbling away because he'd just go off on one. He'd just be, it would just be like a torrent yes. of ideas and words and jokes and one-liners, and I couldn't keep up. You know, no tape recorder could keep up with him. Yes. So I think this is wasted. Nobody's going to hear this again. This is just him 
you know, having a, having a moment kind of <laughs> whether he's ranting or, or anything. Right. So I used to just try and scribble and scribble away and try and capture some of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was just a joy to witness, really. Yes, it's that extemporizing jazz riff that he goes yes, off on. Exactly. Jazz. And he loves jazz, actually. He's a really big jazz fan, hence the George Melly booking. Mm. Um, and I've, you know, I have seen him sing Hard Hearted Hannah, the whore from Savannah, many times, and he's yeah. very good. <laughs> and he just liked the jazz style of going in the 30s, the spats, the pinstripe suits, all that. Um, but yes, he is a very much a jazz comedian. I, I would contend that Paul O'Grady. It has got funny bones. Some comics, oh, yeah. you can develop a fantastic comic persona, but yeah. I think I think Paul is funny from the get go. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And he's never lost that, as you say, that streetwise working class attitude, which is, yeah. I, I think, so endearing. And yeah. from my point of view, he's a. I think Paul's about a week older than me. Yes. And so, as a consequence, we share very much the same interests. Yeah, like TV and comedy and stuff like that, like the Avengers. Avengers. I mean, that malarkey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's and me, me too, actually. I mean, I, I'm a little bit younger, but I, 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 because I've always liked the past, I've always been interested in the past, so I share that love of all those kind of shows, you know, and the Kitchen Sink films, which he also loves, you know. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've always been a bit out of time, so I love all that stuff as well. So we, you know, and, you, and you were very part, uh, very much part of Paul's coterie because Paul is very, very loyal. Uh, so he dragged he Mary, your, in your capacity as Mary, onto Blankety Blank. Yeah, <laughs> that was that. That was after Lily Live. Yes, yeah. I got to do that sitting next to Keith Duffy. I think it was Lembit Opic. Uh, uh, oh, I've forgotten, I've forgotten who it was now. But I was sitting next to Keith Duffy from West Lives. No, Boyzone, not West Lives. Mm. Boyzone. I'm going back a bit. But it, yeah, it was just great. It was great fun. You kind of pinch yourself going, oh my God, I've seen Les Dawson and Terry Wogan do this. This is crazy, you know. Yeah. Just doing a show like that. You mentioned Lily Live, which was a big ITV London weekend Friday night show yeah a lot of money a lot of money chucked out that they really yeah they, they they really threw some cash at it so what how was that behind the scenes uh you, you were writing it but you're also appearing on it so was it a nerve-wracking experience it was ner nerve-wracking but i actually really enjoyed it because i think when it's a tv audience it's a different it's different rules to be in a on a bill in a, in a club somewhere, just a, a, one of many comedians. They've come, they love, probably love Bob, they've got a free ticket for a start. You know, you've done so many, so many of these kind of shows with Bob, um, that they're, they're out for a good time. So it was never, I never thought, oh, this is going to go flat. Um, they were just, they wanted to laugh. They just, they were just felt lucky to be there. And they got all, they got to see all the the break bits, you know, when, when they got to a break and Paul would still be chuntering, you know. Yeah. It was just, it was nerve wracking. The most nerve wracking thing was writing the monologue. And it wasn't, it, Paul mainly came up with stuff, but we had the, several of, of us writers, one of whom was Debbie Barham, who you knew. Oh, Debbie, the late. Debbie was one Debbie. of the ones. Yeah. Um, so we had several writers. So coming up with, I used to sit with the papers and you've been here, sit with the papers on a Monday morning thinking, oh my God. <laughs> so I found that I found the topical stuff quite hard. That wasn't really me. Um, but just just skits. I love doing skits. And, and this, I, I got to do the sketch in the phone room with whoever the guest was that week, whether it was Westlife or Richard and Judy or, you know, um, so that was good. So I just did what I did. I just did my usual Lily's Lily's my boss and I'm I'm a bit rebellious and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, the, the, the topical stuff I found really hard. Yeah, I, I suppose I've always found that to be easier than doing the general stuff, quite honestly. Yeah, you always have a little, you have one, one way or the other, don't you, really? But yeah. I, I prefer to do the kind of 
reference to Daniel O'Donnell or whatever, you know, just I just knew <laughs> Lily more than I, I would know. The, I, I, could, I could see jokes, but I just don't think I had the craftsmanship to kind of do topical comedy, which I know you you did really well with Bob, you know, for his cabaret and stuff but, on the spot. Well, what was marvellous about you working so closely with Paul is that you've got, you, you've kind of said it in a roundabout sort of way, you've got Paul's ear, you've got his, you know what I know Lily what Lily would, would say. say. I know exactly what Lily would say, even going into the break and, and you know, I did two series of that, so it's it's how many times you can say, "Oh, I'm like a whippet on wet line" or whatever. You have to have just something, some line to get yeah. you into the break. And they're just all those technical things about television where you just need a sting or or something about the phone number that he's got to hold up. Or you know, it, it was mainly like little spoofs and sketches and skits more than anything. You know, how to bring a guest on differently mm. one week. <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. You were yeah. um, uh, performing with Paul on a live show. I suppose it, it must have been it was a thumb suck in the sense that if you're a viewer watching a live show with Lily Savage, Stroke, Paul O'Grady presenting it, you're at ease. You're not anxious for them. And as I suppose as no. a performer on a live show, that that was a source of immense comfort as well, knowing that it was. I, I always felt like that Paul, you know, if there was a lull or something went flat. Paul would pick it up. Paul would chuck a Lilyism in somewhere and and save it. We never never got to that point, but I knew I felt in safe hands. Felt absolutely in safe hands with him. Sure. And yeah. you're still mates with Paul. Yes, yes. We don't see each other a lot. Obviously, not especially not through lockdown. But he's yeah. in in Kent most most of the time. I'm in Yorkshire, but we do uh, have you know chat on uh, WhatsApp and Instagram and things like that. So uh, yeah. When we put when I was asked to put together. Well, I give myself airs uh, where, when someone, well, okay, here's the story. Very quickly. I'll bore you. Um, Paul Manette, Brian Leveson and Bobby Bragg had a look at Bob's joke books. Yeah. Uh, I brought them along. And then Brian Leveson and Paul Manette, the sitcom writers, uh, were speaking with Simon Lupton, who was the commissioning editor, the new commissioning editor at UK TV Gold. And they said to him, wow, Coles just showed us Bob's books, his joke books. They are fantastic. So I found myself oh, a week later in, in Old Compton Street in a Cafe Nero or some such. Oh, was that one that uh, what a, a Patisserie Valerie went under shortly yeah. afterwards yeah. Uh, with Paul and Brian, Paul Minette, Brian Leveson and Simon Lupton and me, with Simon Lupton, the commissioning editor, saying, do you think there's a documentary about Bob and Bob's books? Yeah. And I heard myself say, I don't think so, Simon, to be truthful, because the books are an inanimate object. They're not, uh, I'm not sure. How do you bring that to life? Sure. So I walked away and I thought, I'm going down Old Compton Street. I said, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. For years, you've been trying to seduce commissioners with, uh, with programme ideas, which they've all rejected. Suddenly you've got one coming to you saying, I'd like to make <laughs> this show, please. You're an idiot, Edmunds. Jesus. So I went back and I said, you might, Simon, you might have a point. <laughs> And that's how uh, Bob Monkhouse, The Million Joke Man, came about to be made. Yeah, yeah. And, which was a great documentary. I loved it. But and the point I want to make is that the first person I really thought of to host that show, first of all, to voiceover, uh, was Paul O'Grady. Yeah. Because Paul was a, Bob was a huge fan of Paul's. Mm. I mean, Bob would contend that he used to, he used to, maybe once, snuck into the back of the Vauxhall Tavern to watch Lily work. Now, that's an image that I really want to try and develop in my mind's eye. <laughs> and when, we, when you and I get to heaven, we will say to Bob Monkhouse, tell us about you going to the Vauxhall Tavern. What the hell was that? Like? 
Because that's yeah. the most unlikely image, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. I've only been there once, actually, for one of Paul's book launches. It's a fantastic place, but it's, you know, it's not the most salubrious of areas. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a great, that. great venue, but yeah. But Paul, as you pointed out, Paul was brilliant on that documentary. I think he mm. made it. And he had that genuine warmth about Bob because they did, they were like a mutual fan club, really, weren't they? He, oh, you know, he for really sure. admired Bob, you know. Yeah. I think I was the one that told him, um, he, t- he mentioned it in one of his books, and I said, I said something like, he probably said in the interview, I'm a, I'm a whiskey down the nose fan of Lily Savage, you know, just that much. I laughed that much. And um, yeah. Bob was really, really tickled by that. Just thought that was brilliant, you know. Much as I'd love to speak for the rest of the hour about Paul O'Grady because you and I are such admirers and lovers of him yeah. and his work and his incredible comic brain. But let's move on quickly to another great comic brain, Peter Kay. Yeah. One of the so, doyens of, of British comedy. I mean, don't get better than Peter Kay. I've just, I just feel like I, 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 um, it's a bit like Zelig, you know, I'm sorry to quote Woody Allen, but, you know, this kind of Zelig. <laughs> kind of, you know, I feel like I've just appeared in all these things. It's like I'm just being photoshopped on these in my life. <laughs> these, these people. So to meet, you know, to meet Bob and, and you and Lily and, and Peter Kay in one lifetime is amazing, you know. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so I've heard, I, would, I did a lot of gigs in Manchester and around Manchester. And this was like 90s. So there was a big circuit going on, especially the Frog and Bucket and places like that, which you'll have heard of, big mm. pub in the, in the Northern Quarter. Um, so I knew, I knew Dave, from doing gigs there, I knew Dave Spikey, I knew Neil Fitzmaurice, who both ended up writing Phoenix Nights with Peter. Mm. So some great, great comics, you know, Johnny Vegas, the Buzz Club was another big venue in Charlton, fantastic, big, big pub with big cabaret room. So I did, did those a lot. Um, and so I'd heard of Peter, uh, new Dave, anyway, new, new uh, Neil. Um, and I was booked to do a, a gig with Peter at Hebden Bridge Trades Club. So I thought, oh, there's, there's that boy. And in the meantime, that got cancelled for finance reasons, I think for some funding reasons. Um, and I went with some friends to see the City Life Comedian of the Year final in Manchester. City Life was like a free magazine. Yes. Time out. Um, and so it was at this venue and it was hosted by Dave Spikey. And um, in the final were... I've forgotten all of them, but it was Johnny Vegas and Peter Kay. So I thought, oh, here's that boy, you know, and w- watched him. And he actually won. And everybody thought Johnny Vegas would win because he mm. was really getting kind of interest and stuff at the time. Um, and Peter won. But I, I kind of thought, I looked at him, I thought, he's just like somebody from the comedians. He's like a really old little old man in a, a young boy's body. He was only about 24, you know, and he just seemed so old in a good way, mm. commanding the stage confident kind of way so yes. that was my first sighting of peter then i did the um edinburgh festival uh i think a year later um after three weeks with two other scottish comics who were fantastic jane mckay and susan morrison scottish comedians are the best they can yeah. just handle hecklers they're so political and good and just sharp as a book janey godley you know on twitter mm. people like that just I really admire Scottish comedians full stop but um, so I did the Edinburgh Festival and um, one of the after show parties with Johnny Vegas through a party in, in his flat and there were people like Dylan Moran there you know big names of the 90s like Donna McPhail was really big and people mm. like that so it was like the who's who of comedy um, and all the northern comics gathered in the kitchen for some reason so I was sitting around with all people from the circuit I knew suddenly this boy appears next to me and says have you ever worked in factories 
and said, "Yeah, how many won't come here?" And we, we were, he took he took me to the, uh, the the hallway of this big flat, and we just sat on this trunk and just just chatted for hours, and it was like instant. Uh, in a friendly way soulmates you know complete this not the same kind of upbringing but just we just hit it off instantly you know um had a coffee the next day I did a gig together and just and so after after that he, he was only up there to do oh one of the heats you know someone you think is funny or BBC new comedian or whatever so he wasn't really known at that time but he, he, he did subsequently win whatever competition it mm-hmm. was um, and so not long after that, I got asked to do Comedy Nation for BBC Two. It was a late night sketch show, just like 11.30 at night, ridiculous time. Mm. But um, they said, write some stuff. So I came up with this idea for the trainers sketch where I played a mum who was buying us some cheap trainers and he found Childline because he was so upset about it. And then mm. he had to play out with all his friends wearing the cheap trainers. So that was basically the nub of the sketch. I asked Peter to do it and he said yes. So we ended up in London um, doing this sketch with a lovely director called Gareth Karavik who'd done loads of loads of really good sitcoms, absolutely fabulous. And everything. lovely man. No, sadly not, not, no, not with us anymore. Um, so he was lovely. He just let us go. And it was it was in one take. There's no edit. The first scene where we were walking down the street in London and arguing, just arguing, um, was one take. And it was amazing. Um, it, it does irk me slightly because I got paid, obviously, the BBC rate at the time. And since then, it's been on Peter's, Not he's not responsible for this, but there's a fan site on Facebook. And it's got millions and millions of hits. Yeah. And people say, oh, it's like Shane Meadows, it's this, it's that. And I'm thinking, God, you know, I've probably got 250 quid for that. Yes. <laughs> and it should have been 100 times that. Nobody knows I wrote it or that I'm even in it, you know, because well, Peter... Yeah everything you know which is good for him but you know it's a, it does irk you slightly when you, sure. you're, you're a kind of uh, a forgotten <laughs> yeah i i no. suppose i i can identify with that hugely uh as a writer um oh. but as a performer too because and if if you want to watch this sketch it's on youtube so if you if you t- if you go to youtube and type peter k uh, Jane Tunnicliffe, yeah. you'll happen upon this, where you're paying, playing Peter's mum. I looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And I was shocked at how youthful you looked, of course, but, <laughs> Peter, but Peter did too. Yeah, and he insisted on wearing that stupid crush helmet kind of thing. I don't know why. I just found it in the offices of the BBC. <laughs> and I, I think he just didn't want to be recognised, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but actually, we did another sketch. Well, he was supposed to do another sketch after that, um, and it was basically it was a kitchen sink spoof and it was me um and me and a boy you know kind of Lawrence Harvey kind of room at the top kind of thing where we were in a back street anyway Peter didn't want to do it partly because of his well mainly because of his Catholic background because of the tone of the sketch because it was about getting rid of it so the whole conversation was well what we're going to do mm. we'll have to get rid of it and it was a Valdunican record <laughs> 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 that was the set. So we ended up doing it with Michael Parkinson, Mike Parkinson, Michael Parkinson's son, who was on the crew. Yes. He worked on the crew and he's a lovely, really handsome guy, you know. And so he was great as a, you know, kind of Lawrence Harvey type person. So it probably worked better in the end than it would have done with me and Peter. It might look too comedic. But um, yeah, so so, <laughs> so Peter didn't want to do that because it was a bit, bit against his. Uh, I think his mum would have been a bit upset about the tone of it. But uh, yeah. yeah, there should have been two sketches with Peter, but just one. But did you not get the chance to write for Peter's act? Yeah, so that we obviously we were in touch, you know, but mainly by email at the time. He used to send me send me, you know, rough 
things, rough, rough scripts and stuff. Um, and he was doing Live at the Top of Black Bull Tower, which was a released video at the time. This is how old it is. It was a video. Um, and so uh, I got to, I'm actually on it as well on the end credits. So I just, just wrote, it was just a couple of bits about Black Bull Tower and stuff. I've forgotten now. It's just his act in general. Mm. So it was just over email. And then over the end credits, I wrote three sketches that was me and another girl who was crying and, and she, 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 the hint was that she was pregnant by him and, and he's just blanked us, he's just blanked us, I just didn't want to know, so it's funnier than making it sound. And then there was Smug Roberts, who you might not know, but he's quite a well-known Manchester comedian, um, and he was going, he was playing Dave Perkin, who used to own the Frog and Bucket, and Dave Perkin became Den Perry in Phoenix Nights. Wow. Den Perry is based on Dave Perkin. Dave Perkin would stand at the end of the bar with a camel-haired coat on and a cigar, which you could <laughs> smoke in those days. You're out, Mary, you know, proper Mancunian, you know, kind of Mancunian mafioso kind of time. So that was who Den Perry, played by Ted Robbins, was based on. Um, so Smug Roberts came on as, Den, as, as Dave Perkin, and he's going, ah, used to collect glasses in my place. Now he's got helicopters. You know, he's just all that. It was just basically people bitching about Peter. Now he's famous. He's this, he's that, you know. Yeah. So I did all those, those wrote all those three sketches and a little bit of his stand-up. So I got a, um, a additional material credit along with Dave Spikey. So, yeah, I got quite a nice little payout from that, that oh, video. Wonderful. Actually. I mean, to be on the, be on the role of a, of a Peter K video is just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's still shown on things now, you know, the... the uh, because it was filmed in the circus at the top. it really was filmed at the top of Blackpool Tower you know it's amazing but what was lovely about Peter was he did get everybody from the circuit that he knew who were all comics and not actors and we all you know we all became actors because of him really um, isn't that the mark of a great comedy before a great performer full stop is that they're so generous like Paul like Bob Bankhouse, yeah. like Peter K. They're so generous with their talent. They want to embrace the people that they know and bring them on yeah. as well. There's no jealousy. No, and it, and it was also, I think he just wanted to be with people that he's very big on being comfortable. You know, he's never left the north. He's, he's, oh, I don't know, I think he's got a house in Ireland as well now, but I think, I think he still lives around Bolton and mm. all those kind of things. So I think he just wanted, rather than get nameless casting director acting people he just wanted us I mean he knew because he, he could act he knew we could act as well and we could you know um so and we ended we all ended up in uh, I did that Peter Kay thing so I was in that in Leonard which was a great great episode and I played the, the bus station manageress who he had a crush on Leonard had a crush on and, and this, this isn't really seen but if you see Leonard's bedside table is because he was a little bit of a special special needs kind of guy you know a little, little bit um, needed a bit of help so he was winning an award for being the oldest paper boy in Bolton and Peter completely immersed himself in this character looked like Kenny Rogers had grey hair and so much so that I passed him on the on the, the set on the, the, the you know what you call the camp unit base and I, he actually walked past me and I went oh god Peter just didn't didn't recognize him at all um, but yeah so that, that was brilliant and and that was he like he loved to improvise so but again my big biggest scene in that was in the cafe so I had to clear plates whilst talking to Leonard then serve him a cup of tea and a full meal also while whilst doing the lines um, and it was one take till it was about a five minute scene or something. It was ridiculous. And in the middle of it, he's picking up the Bolton newspaper and putting it on the train, just trying to throw me, you know, <laughs> trying to throw a spanner in the way. So I'm just amazed I got to the end of it. But it was it was a really tricky scene. Um, and totally unglamorous, which I liked, you know, I've got that the net hat on and everything. <laughs> 
yeah. So, yeah, that was proper, proper, again, I'm saying Shane Meadows, but it was proper, you know, almost Ken Loach, real, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, he was, a, he was a good teacher and he was into all that stuff. He was into Ken Loach and, and Mike Lee and, and people like that. So there's another thing they had in common. But, yeah, very real. Very real. Very working class. Um, and you come from a working class background, uh, much much the same as me. So how did you, growing up in what, West Yorkshire? Yeah. How did you get the taste or the ambition to become a performer? What inspired you? Nobody in my family had, had done it, except my, I've got a brother, Paul, who's six years older than me, and he decided to start a band where he was the front man. And I went to see him just in a local pub with my aunt. And he was really good. I mean, from doing nothing like that before, he was really good as a good front man, a good looking boy, you know. Um, and I just thought, you know, that phrase, if you can see it, you can be it. It was that moment. I thought it wasn't a jealous thing at all. I was really applauding it. But I thought, my goodness, if somebody from my family can do that, maybe, just maybe I can... I can have a go at doing this, not in music, but, you know, doing some kind of performing. And I can only remember at school, I was jealous when there was a play, but I would never have dreamt of putting myself forward for it. Just because it wasn't done. You know, I didn't have that. I went to a grammar school, which was, there was some quite posh pupils there. Hmm. So they had that, we were talking the other day about this, about the sense of entitlement, you know, that confidence yeah. that a middle-class background can instill in you. And I just would never have even dreamt of doing that. But when, when we had an English lesson and they sometimes gave us a play and gave you a line to read out, I used to think, give me it, let me do it. And I, I would love reading. I could sight read really well. So I had that knowledge that I knew how things should be said mm. uh, from reading out a play, just sitting at your desk at school. So that was my, my only thing. And then another uh, English lesson at my grammar, grammar school, um, we did a balloon debate uh, mm. where you had to be somebody and you had to argue why you shouldn't be chucked out of the balloon because the balloon was going down. And I, for some reason, this is totally out of character, I loved his was, and I became David Bellamy and I got up in front of the class and did David Bellamy. And and after that, I was like popular. Yeah. <laughs> it was that moment of going, my God, I can make people laugh. And I was with all the popular girls, you know. It was crazy after being this mousy, mousy kind of shy girl, you know. What I find fascinating is that you had the, oh, the, the ambition, the drive to overcome uh, the advantage, in inverted commas, that those kind of middle class confident people had. You with your working yeah. class, but you the drive through, yeah. and I admire that enormously because you, you're setting off really ground zero, aren't you, with no advantage yes. at all. No advantage, no no old school tie, no no friends in the business, no, and none of your Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying here, but you know, but there, there are a lot of actors these days who are from a really you know privileged background, and that's most that's most actors these days. And drama yeah. school's so expensive. I mean, I never. And the the other thing, I've, I've, I'm going to have a tangent here. I um, before up knock, so I'm talking about eighties. We went to Liverpool, me and Mandy, came back home and I decided to do, we'd always knocked about doing music and playing guitar and stuff. And I decided we should do some poetry, make our songs into poetry because we weren't quite confident enough at singing and playing. Hmm. So we did this thing, I uh, don't know why I saw the advert, it was called Radio Read Around. 
and it was at the Crescent Hotel in Ilkley, and it was run by um, Ian McMillan and Martin Wiley. And Ian McMillan's quite well known as a very northern poet, very Barnsley. Um, and so they had a Radio Sheffield show, BBC Radio Sheffield show. So we got up and we did this, did two poems. Uh, and one of them was, it was basically kitchen sink poetry. So it was very kind of John Cooper Clark, rhythmic, mm. you know, fast, not promise kind of. And it was um, basically the story of this awful working class couple that, you know, are awful, awful nightmare, not not love through the dream. And it went down a storm. We got a real round of applause. And me and Mandy were just stunned. We went and sat down and had a pint in, in the end and went, what happened? What just happened? And yeah. um, Ian came over and said, Come on, come on our Radio Sheffield show. And that's how it kind of snowballed. And that's how we ended up on Ock Knox. We did, right. you know, Martin Kellner's Radio Leeds show, Peter Levy's Radio Leeds show, all those kind of local DJs who gave us a really good platform for doing uh, poetry. And the James Whale radio show, which was actually on the telly late mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. That was a really big break for us. They used to have us on every other week, you know, doing a poem. Yeah. Um, the, so that was our routine, really. The Mandy you're talking about is Mandy Craig. Was she... An old friend or was someone you met when you took yourself off as a teenager to Liverpool to investigate that scene? Yeah, before Liverpool, um, we just we were actually local. She lived, she lived quite near me. And we just, I don't know how we, we met, but we um, we obviously both like loved the Beatles, loved the 60s, loved the 50s. Um, so we, we just became friends. Um, and then we, we both had a mutual friend in Liverpool called Liz, who was settling on over with us. But that's how we ended up going to live there, because we, we, we just loved the music scene. It was mid-80s, so it was, you know, frankly, just the Hollywood and Flock of Seagulls and all that. So it was a great nightlife in Liverpool. So Because people say, well, you left home and went to Liverpool. That's nice. <laughs> you know? But actually, we, we loved it. I mean, it was as good as London. It was fantastic. You know, it was, it, for us, it was just, you know, the people, the, the nightlife was great. So how did you and Mandy find yourself on, in 1989, I think, on yeah. Bob Says Opportunity Knocks, a talent show? So we'd done we'd done a few James Wales, and that had given us a little bit of a taste of performing. And Mandy was even quieter than I, you know, I was quiet as a kid. She's still quite shy and retiring. So I kind of dragged her, kicking and screaming into the limelight. But you know, I didn't want to do it on my own. I wanted to. I wanted to make that with me. Like when you're in a band, it's great because you've got that you know camaraderie so um so she was kind of reluctant but I, I dragged her so we again we saw the, the infamous stage probably advert for BS okay you know um and so we went to some hotel godforsaken hotel on the outskirts of Leeds on the motorway auditioned and then got asked down to Riverside Studios mm-hmm. was it in Hammersmith yeah. um, took my mum and dad down with us and um, did our little bit and my mum and dad were sat in the audience about two rows behind Bob and we didn't realise he'd be there. He was actually, because, he, he, you know, he, he used to watch a lot of the comedy auditions. Yeah. Uh, repaired to the canteen afterwards, and he came over to us, put his briefcase down on the table and said, girls, fantastic, we want you on the show. Yeah. And we walked out with him to the show driven car and then just, just I mean, my mum and dad were more impressed than we were because they, they'd known Bob for long, you know, on telly for longer than we, we had. Yeah. Um, and it was at that we didn't know Bob that well much about him really because he was quiz show Bob and Family Fortunes and Bob Full House liked him but I never thought of him really as a comedian and it was only when we did Up Knocks and I read Crying with Laughter and you know kind of chatting with him and stuff that I realised wow you know what a guy <laughs> uh, yeah I, I do remember that audition of yours at the Riverside you could always tell with because I said I used to sit next to Bob 
and Stuart Morris would Stuart Morris, the producer, would sit yeah. down the front with a little monitor because there was one camera on you to record your act yeah. so that he could review it um in, back in the office. But and Bob always insisted on being there for the comedy acts. Yes. Yeah. That was a that was a hard and fast rule of his. So we all traipsed yeah. along there. And he you always knew when he, he liked somebody because he would shuffle his papers and shuffle up <laughs> in his chair and sit up a bit more. And I remember him doing that with you. And I, I remember him saying, oh, I don't know, Cole, there's something there, you know. I think we found something <laughs> here. And, and he never said that very often. And that's why I think I remember it with you. Yeah. And then that really then, you're appearing on Opportunity Knocks, uh, sort of started another long friendship between you and Bob. Yeah, I've been very lucky, haven't I? And, you know, Paula Grady, Peter Kay and Bob. Um, and, uh, well, Bob was... The first, actually, but I met Bob before Paul mm. and, and Peter. But yeah, so you know, we did we didn't know how kind he was and how generous with his time. But he must have had to look after all those little lame ducks, you know, that had been on up knocks and then were desperate to do other things afterwards. And he just used to throw letter after letter, saying, "Here's a sketch. Here's this. Do this. Do that. Yes, put music in your act if you want to." Do that. So you know, we've all got sheets of letters from him, which he used to put his phone number on and everything. I never dared phone it, but you know, you know, he'd always put the the phone number of eggington and everything on there and um yeah, it was just just mad i think we've all gotten so many letters from him and it was it, no but who does that who does that who's a celebrity who gives the time so freely it's crazy and he always you know, did uh, i don't know if he you'll tell me but did he feel really responsible for for people that had been on the show um, some people not everybody well, that's, but... a, that's a very good question i I think he wanted to encourage the real talent. Uh, yeah. He really got four square behind and, and threw all his weight behind the real talent who thought he had enormous potential. Yeah. Um, he was never a great fan of what he called joke announcers. Like yeah. Someone who will stand behind the microphone and just hit you with a laundry list of jokes with no yeah. real cohesion or thought behind it. It's just a laundry list of unrelated jokes. Yeah. That was of no interest to him. When we came along with something new, like you and Mandy as the Dicky Bards, reciting this this poetic funny stuff that was well, oh yeah now this has got potential this i want to see more of i like um, to think that he was um um he saw he, he must have seen i mean we were very raw you know and i don't think we were very good even but you know we we had i think we did have he saw some kernel of something mm. in us i think and he did say that we were unique and original which was a lovely thing to say mm. can be an insult in a way but <laughs> not from him but um yeah so I, and he said we were a bit like elsie and doris waters you know Bert and daisy but that's yeah. what he compared us to so uh, yeah so it was nice to to be at that time, I would contend, Jane, there weren't many female double acts. No, not at all. No, we were different. We were very different, you know. And the only poem I liked that we did on that was the one, the final one, and it was uh, it was kind of an insult to Bob. And it was like, oh, Bob likes us. It was like, well, what did you think? We were doing the viewers, so it was like, well, what did you think of them marrying? Who, mm. well, you know, that daft poetry pair. Well, we'll never find anyone to marry him if you've seen the state of the hair, you know, and it was all, well, Bob likes her so much she's crying, but then again, what does he know? And it was really, yeah. <laughs> but Morris actually said, Are you sure you want to say that? And we went, yeah, I think we do, actually. So yeah. the cheekiness of that, you know, um, but it, we were just being the viewer, because, and it was called that they should have sung Love on the Rocks. It was about being, you know, 
sparkly frocks and love on the rocks, basically. So we were kind of taking the mick out of the show, but in a in a kind way, you know. Yes, for sure. Uh, I, I, so that was that was my favourite thing. I think that, and we actually came second the week after after Matt Mudd, who'd won God knows how many times, about three times by then. As I, as I remember, gosh, and, and appearing on Opportunity Knox was was a as a comic was a tough gig actually. It's yeah, I don't say it's easier. Yes, it is easier for singers. I think it's easier for singers in show business anyway because oh, I uh, think it is. Absolutely. You, know, you can you can have uh, a singer come on. And if they don't sing their most popular songs, uh, the crowd get restless and they're not very happy. But yeah. a comic come on can't come on and keep doing the same old stuff. Here's, here's a favourite joke of mine, which I know you, you can't love. can't do your greatest hits as a comic. You just can't. Yeah. And, and you know, much as Matt Mudd was a lovely, you know, good-looking young guy. His mum and dad were in the mudlarks, so he had, like, kind of showbiz thing going on. Yeah. Um, but he, and he was a great singer, and I think it was maybe Bob's idea for him to do New York, New York the last time. And it was just went over so no. No, the sea, beyond the sea. Sorry, mm. I'm thinking of Brenda. The other one, um, beyond the sea, he did, which was a, the La Mer. Mm. That's um, which was a great, you know, fifties kind of crooner kind of song, very very Sinatra. And so, you know, whoever pushed him in that direction was exactly right. So we were up against that, but you're almost as a singer taking on the success of that song, aren't you? That you've already got that leverage of that brilliant song, whether it's New York, New York, or whatever. Yeah. It's I am a bit envious of singers. <laughs> in that way oh definitely uh, what's sad about those times uh is that we didn't have mobile phones in those days and therefore we didn't have that camera facility so we couldn't snap a hundred photographs as you do now in your environment yeah. so i think there's only a couple of photographs of you and bob together isn't there yes there's one well luckily we had more than the, the standard bbc one that you get on Knox, which was lovely me and i've got it on the wall in there actually and um, we had our local newspaper the telegraph and argus came down did a big interview with bob and us and so there's a lovely two shots of, of him talking to us on stage and what fascinates me is he's got a coke can in his hand and he's actually wrapped paper around it or tissue around it so he's not advertising <laughs> yes yes that's exactly right because he used to he used to rehearse drinking diet coke Yes, it was Diet Coke, and he's got a white like tissue or cloth. That's there, right. <laughs> I, I remember there were there were other writers on the show. Uh, yes. the, the late lamented John Junkin, you will remember. Oh, we love John. We're obviously Beatles fans. He was Shake. Yeah, Bodie in Hard Days Night. So we love John. Yeah, and he was so kind to us. Yes, he was. He was a, a tremendously nice man. There was also Gavin Osborne and yes, Paul Alexander. Uh, yeah. Paul Paul who, now, who writes film scripts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul wrote. Paul now writes film scripts. I don't know what happened to Gavin. He disappeared off the face of the earth. But Stuart Morris, I remember saying, Colin, yes, Stuart. Bob's got drink in that can. So what do you mean he's got? He's got alcohol. He's drinking wine during rehearsals. And Stuart knew Bob would like a glass of wine uh, yeah. before he went on and a large whiskey afterwards. But he's, he's drinking wine during the rehearsals. I said, he's not drinking wine. It's, it's Diet Coke. And he said, well, why has he got that? Why has he got that? serviette around it so you can't see the red wine i said stuart it's a tin can <laughs> gee god oh. <laughs> what i loved about it was he did he did that because um for that photograph of the local paper he wasn't going to be advertising diet coke for nothing oh absolutely right. yes that's exactly right, right. i yeah. love that savviness of him to do that yeah. but on the <laughs> set i must admit on the set the reason he had the serviette 
wasn't for advertising at all. It was because it had come out the fridge. It was actually it was damn freezing. cold to touch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I was, I was kind of, you know. No, I think, I think you're probably right. I think it was much more acumen. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember sitting, you know, in the, in the audience watching other, other acts before, uh, audition, and Bob talking to somebody's mum and dad and sort of going, oh, you know, if you've got girls, pray and stuff, about bringing children up and, you know, just being lovely to them about having children and just, just, just chatting. Um, and you know, I just thought he's so lovely. He's just got time for everybody. He's just a, just a really nice guy, you know. That that was the very nature of the man. Then I guess you and Mandy decided to go to split up the Dicky Bards, and Mandy and you went your separate ways. Well, we did it. We did it for quite a while. Uh, you know, obviously that gave us a little bit of a platform. We got a manager out of it who was um, Phil Cool and Jasper Carrots. Well, the two of them actually. Wow. So they managed Phil Cool and Jasper Carrots. So we ended up doing a few support slots with Phil Cool, um, and a, and a, quite a few really good gigs around the country. Lonnie Donegan you know proper theatre gigs really nice oxford university summer ball with bad manners and things like that so really, wow. some really good gigs um and labby sifri you know lots of festivals and great gigs so we did that for a while and then i can't remember it wasn't a, a um a sudden thing i think Mandy just thought oh, i've had it we did within all that you always have a bad gig you know and especially <laughs> i was thinking the other night knowing i've got this coming up thinking we did one of the first gigs we did after Knox was the tunnel club which was in Greenwich I remember the tunnel yeah you know of this. and it was it was compared and run and owned by Malcolm Hardy the late Malcolm Hardy who was a real character and he was what was the late night tis was called um, tis was was on late at night yeah it was that lock-in thing after our it was sort of, oh, oh gosh it will come to us yeah but anyway so he was in the um balloon dancers he was one of the balloon dancers oh I never knew that yeah, so Malcolm Barley was one of those. So it's like a guy, old guys all naked who used to just pop balloons and just try not to show anything. <laughs> to like, um, you know, the, uh, like the, not the stripper theme, but they just used to pop balloons and it was yeah. kind of like, you know, turn turn around and they show the back view and stuff. So Malcolm was one of those. So our managers had booked us into the tunnel club and it, it used to move venues, but it was at the Greenwich. Greenwich and um, <clears throat> so we went on, and at the time we'd been doing a few gigs and we, <laughs> Mandy and I had decided to do these characters that were a bit like, I love Victoria Wood, you know, and it mm. was a little bit like, I'm looking for my friend, Kimberly. Have you seen it? You know, it was that kind of slightly, slightly needs a bit of help kind of person. So we did very, you know, great for a sketch on YouTube these days, but not to do at the Tunnel Club live on stage wearing cagoules with the hoods pulled really tight around us. <laughs> One thing on stage going, mm, looking for the dog. We didn't do obviously that line, but it was like a really, you know, low key. It was something to be filmed, not to do live. So we did this, and it was just met by, you know, just kind of bafflement. I think by this <laughs> audience. So we did. We shuffled, didn't get killed or anything, but we shuffled off, and Malcolm kind of went, oh, oh, oh afterwards, you know, it's like, oh. And then, and then it was uh, Steve Coogan as an impressionist was on after us. Can you believe this? The lineup doing impressions, and they were that hard of a crowd that he did Ben Elton. That's how he came out. Aggressive, aggressive Ben Elton impression. You know, he gave his most aggressive impression. And then it was Lee Evans, who was, you know, how, you know how much Lee Evans sweats when he's on stage. <laughs> And he was just just dripping. You were so it was hard audience, and we went on and did that awful sketch. These two girls with the ghouls on, <laughs> and then we had to stay at Malcolm's house afterwards in Greenwich. Oh, bless him! And sadly, he he, uh, he passed away some years later, and I think he had a houseboat on the Thames, and he drowned in the Thames. 
Oh, very sad. I then. remember that, yeah. Yeah. So, but he was a real character, Marco. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned Lee Evans, and that was another occasion sitting next to Bob, uh, in the in the bleachers at Riverside Studios watching the auditions. And Lee Evans came on to audition for Bob Says Opportunity Knocks, and once Bob, again, yeah. yeah, Bob then shuffled his papers and sat up and said, "We're in the presence of greatness." Yeah, we are in yeah. the presence of greatness. And Bob went down and said, you've got to do the show. It's marvellous. And I remember Lee Evans saying, oh, my manager doesn't want me to do the television show. I'm being pulled this way and that way. I don't know which, which way I want to go. And Bob said, oh, I'd really appreciate if you did the show because it would be marvellous. And in the end, Lee Evans did not that it held him back. No. <laughs> it it's amazing, isn't it? Just, yeah. It's just a moment in time, you yes. know. And I mean, people now that are part of the establishment, obviously, like Steve Coogan and Joe Brand, and um, you know, we 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 supported all these people at, at gigs, you know, um, uh, all over the country. Um, and I've, I've still got some of the flyers, you know, because I can't quite believe, believe oh. it myself. You know, it's just like a different person. Um, but yeah, it was a, a real comedy boom actually. Late nineties, eighties uh, and nineties were real comedy boom time. A wonderful time when a lot of the older comics like Bob and Bob's generation were being eased out of the frame. Yeah. And it, it really took a, a performer of enormous ambition and resilience, and indeed, I think, talent to hang on, as, as I think Bob Monkhouse did. Yeah, and I think the autobiography did a, did a lot to help that, didn't it? Because as soon as he brought out Crying With Laughter, people looked at him in a different way. It was so revealing and so fascinating. You know, and that, that opened a whole new world up to him, didn't it? I'm doing, you know, have I got news for you and, and all those kind of things. And yes. he suddenly, suddenly became comedian Bob, not just family fortunes Bob. Yes. To me, I, to me and everybody else, I think. And I think at the time you would have noticed, Jane, in conversation with him, his intelligence and eloquence, which didn't necessarily come over during his game show comedy performances. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought, what, what, what an erudite man. I've never met anybody as worldly and kind of, you know, just knew so much. He was, he was, and they're so talented as well. You know, the cartoonists in him and um, writing and everything. It just, you know, it wasn't just stand up. He was, he was just yeah, man of many talents. It was, it was sickening. <laughs> well, well, it was, but not unlike yourself. And I'll get, I'll get to your myriad other talents after we've talked about performance, if I may. OTT, by the way, that was that oh, um, that was that one. late night version of Tiswas, hosted by Chris Tarrant. Yeah, I'm just showing off with a bit of memory there. So, <laughs> Grace Cell's still slightly working. So, how long after the Dicky Bards, uh, you decided that maybe the Dicky Bards didn't have the legs that, that you wanted it to have? Did you become an actress per se? Um, I started. I think I kept on doing. I can't remember the timeline, to be honest, but I kept on doing my own gigs, obviously. And, and then the poetry kind of gave way to more and more one-liners. And then I had a guitar in the act, which I'd spoken to Bob about, you know, about mm -hmm. bringing music into the act. Um, and then a ukulele, just because it was small, I didn't need much miking up and it was easier to carry. And it was comedic. It was to add that built-in, you know, almost George Formby thing to start with. And lots of people have exploited that since. And there's been such a ukulele boom you know, on YouTube and everything. But at the time, I wasn't the first people to do that. And I actually did uh, that song, Anarchy and the Ukulele, and then the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain called their first album that, which I was really annoyed about 10 years later. But they, <laughs> that's what they called their album, Anarchy and the Ukulele. I never knew that. 
Yeah, so just some people, sometimes the idea comes to more than one person. Let's leave it there. <laughs> You're a, a, such a generous spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I carried on doing that for quite a while. And then I think it came to, oh, I, I got, I did about a year of supporting Craig Charles on tour. Um, he was obviously a poet as well, so there were nice kind of circular things like that, but he did a lot more comedy. He'd been in Red Dwarf, so he had a real good profile. But how that came about was he'd been, no secret here, he had gone to prison for something, which we're mm. not going to, yeah. and got acquitted. And his first gig back was at the Duchess of York in Leeds, who was supporting him? Me. So, <laughs> so that was the first time he'd, he'd, he'd actually gone in front of an audience after the whole publicity about prison thing. And so he was really nervous how he'd be, you know, uh, received. So I went out and I was quite, quite saucy and a bit, bit, bit blue in places. Um, and it went down so well. And he had, he had such a good reception that night. I think I was a bit of a talisman for him. So when he went on tour, he wanted me with him. And I kind of paved the way. I could be a bit rude. And then he could see how rude he could be after me you know so I did, did about oh, probably about 18 months of gigs with Craig in theatres and universities um on a tour bus wow on the country on a rock and roll tour bus it was crazy uh, so that was a real uh, real adventure um and then come about late 1999 I just thought oh I don't think I want to do this anymore I just got a bit sick of the traveling and the, it's quite a lonely job you know it's hmm. quite a lonely job especially for a woman you know, you're out late at night, you, you, you're there carrying your little ukulele back to your car, and it's all a bit, it's a bit grim, actually, you know, so I take my hat off to any comedian who persists with it, because it's not easy. Um, mm. So I decided to just concentrate on writing and maybe see if I could get an acting part in something, um, and that's kind of how all that, all that happened, um, and... Uh, all the piece of cake stuff from the Comedy Nation and everything like that all happened around that time. So from 97 to about 2002, I had a really good kind of golden period of acting and writing and, and being on lots of stuff. Yeah, so up to and including Coronation Street. Coronation Street, I got a part in that in 2002, which was a one-off part. And I played um, Peter Barlow, who was a bigger mist. And he was married to Shelley, who's Sally Lindsay, and another lady. And I was, she was a florist, and I was the temporary florist who had to stop Peter Barlow from getting in to see his one of his wives. Ah. Uh, and it was lovely because it was directed by my friend Ian Bevitt, um, who I'd known from Yorkshire Television. And uh, Chris Gascoigne, who played Peter, was so lovely to me. Um, so I felt really at home. And it was a very short scene. And then about two years later, I got asked back to do to audition for Yana who was Scylla's friend, again, a one-off part. Um, Scylla had been, Scylla was married to Les Attersby, mm -hmm. and he was he was suspicious of her having some kind of affair. So he followed her to the bingo, where he met me in the queue for a burger van, and we flirted, uh, unbeknownst, not knowing she was my friend and the you know, he was her partner. Um, so that was a one-off, um, and they liked me so much, they just kept writing me back in. And, and rightly, rightly so, I think, because you really caused a heck of a stir when you when you pitched up in Corey playing Yana Lum, if I remember rightly. Yeah, this this mini skirted kind of chattery temptress. Yeah, I, I remember thinking at the time, because obviously seeing you, I thought, oh, hello, you've got to watch this rather more carefully. I always thought at the time that you and Scylla, Wendy, Wendy, Wendy Peters, were a bit like. I suppose Laurel and Hardy. It was such a great 
Coronation Street double act in the way I would think that Stan, Stan and Hilda were, and in the yeah. way that Curly and Reg were. It was yeah, they a, love the double acts. It, it, it's true. And actually, I think there were, there were about five of us in the in the second casting. I had to do two castings. Um, and one of the women, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think she plays Beth Beth in the street now. So she's a little bit like Wendy to look at. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure she was at the second audition as one of the potential Yarners. And I think I think one of the reasons I got the job was because I was six foot in heels and Wendy's about five foot two. Yes. So it looked great. It looked, it had that Cynthia and Hilda Baker, Laurel and Hardy, you know, just that we looked funny. The height yeah. difference was awful to, awful to frame. Yeah. <laughs> awful to frame, but uh, they managed, you know, but yeah, so we, lo- we looked funny together. Yeah. And we, we really got on well as well. Yeah. It was, it was, give us a one and a half shot of Scylla and Yana, yeah. please. <laughs> Well, so what was it like behind the scenes on Corey? I mean, it, I mean, now that they they churn out even more shows, don't they? But yeah. what, what was, how intensive was was the farming back then? It was still. I mean, it was. I can't remember how many days a week it was, but it was probably four, four, three, at least three or four days a week then um and you know you didn't get time for rehearsal you would just probably rehearse if it was me and Wendy we'd just sit in the green room and run lines mm-hmm. um and then you were out and you were on your spot and the director would come over and say can we just do it for for you know camera an- angles and things and that was it and it was just like a line one but the, the good thing about car- um, acting on soap is a lot of it is positioning it's cheating the shot you know especially now with covid i don't know how they're doing it you know to make people look closer together than they are but that was all the furniture was always smaller than in real life you know so you you do all that kind of cheating with angles and do reverse shots on two shots and all that kind of thing so it was all so you didn't have really have to do a scene all the way through it would be very choppy because you'd do a line then they'd turn everything around and do it on you you know so it was it was by the time you did it you kind of knew it really well anyway because it was all very choppy Roger Edwards, who's appeared on the podcast before. I mean, Roger's saying that learning lines, when you watch Les Dennison and Russ Abbott pick up a script, read it a couple of times and suddenly it's in their heads. I guess as an actress on Corrie, you, you needed to have that line retention. I know you've said, you know, it's choppy and changing, but really there's there's no room for error, is there, on Corrie? No, and I mean, God, God, it's crude up. You know, it's a lot of money waiting there already for you. You know, um, I remember once somebody told me I was freed from a seat, free, you know, free to go kind of thing. So I went back to the dressing room, started taking rings off and all the bits in the hair and everything. And somebody came running through and went, you're not released, what are you doing? and it was just a communication breakdown you know and I had to literally find what ring I'd gone on what finger just just because they're all waiting there you know it wasn't my fault it wasn't the other person it was just just a breakdown in communication but you know that's a lot of money yes you know sparks and and, you know uh just everybody the whole crew just waiting there for you so yeah so there was I tell you the worst thing on Corrie is when you've got a scene in the Rovers with a lot of people and you you know there's the Ken Barlow and the Rita and the all, the, all those those kind of people because then you don't want to mess up in front of those <laughs> those of people yes. you know big scene in the Rovers is really nerve wracking really nerve wracking um, but no I I absolutely loved every minute minute of it you know and I must say the first time I ever watched him when I did the Peter Barlow bigamy thing. Helen Worth, who plays Gail, um, greeted me and said, oh, you're just here for the day doing one scene. And I said, yeah. And she was so, so lovely to me and welcoming. I've never forgotten it. So thank you, Helen. Really made me feel just... Because I was, I didn't sleep the night before. I stayed in an awful, you know, those kind of Australian hotels. Mm -hmm. 
now. You know, the kind there's one really near Key Street. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Wagamama's, but for a, it's called Didgeridoo or something. I forgot yes. what it's called. I didn't get a wink of sleep because it was really noisy. Um, and so I got there and I was, I was just like, you know, matchsticks in my eyes. And I'm just so nervous because that's hard walking into a green room, seeing, the, you know, people like Betty Turpin were still in it in those days. And, you know, all these big names, you know, Jack and Vera, they're all still in it. So you kind of go, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> really weird. It's like walking into your television. You're a great fan of talking pictures. Uh, and the reason I mention that is that it strikes me that most of the characters that you've played reflect your working class background, glamorous uh, working class. Is that why you're a great fan of talking pictures? Because of not only that's your background and the characters you played, but talking pictures is very famous for showing those kind of gritty kitchen sink films that you don't yeah. normally see on BBC One, BBC Two. Yeah, I, I've always loved them. I don't know why. I just, I, don't, I always did. I mean, uh, th there is a kind of connection because I'm, I, I live in Bingley and I'm, I'm from Saltair originally, but grew up in Bingley. And John Brain, who wrote Room at the Top, mm. was from Bingley and wrote it here. So there is a local connection. The top is Eldwick, which is a village not far from me here. So the the, the local amateur dramatic society. My dad's from Bingley. He remembers. The, the, you know, so it was all based in the kind of it's called Wally in the film, but it's actually Bingley, so that's that's my my hometown. So there was always that case. Billy Lyon was written by Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall, I think. Yeah, Willis filmed Hall. in Keith, filmed in Bailden, um, you know, filmed in Bradford. Um, and so there's a real kind of there is that kind of past kind of fame of the, the northern you know, Billy Lyon, the, the whole storyline is him not going to London when he should have done, you know, from the north. And it, it's that kind of smashing time that the, the uh, George Melly wrote the screenplay to Smashing Time, which starred Lynn Redgrave and Rachel Tushingham. And yeah. they were actually from a town called Slagheap. And they got the train to London and it was all, oh, Clara was really good until it's kind of flattening all in Carnaby Street. And Paul loves, Paul O'Grady loves this film as much as I do. But it was a real cartoony kind of film. But it was that kind of thing of, you know, you, I think Alan Bennett famously said, um, you know, growing up in Leeds was like living on the sidelines of life. Mm. And you feel that in the north. You grew up in London, so you yeah. don't you don't know this feeling, but you do feel that. You you it's it's you know, you're in the sticks kind of thing. So there is always that feeling. So I remember the when we went to Alt Knox, um, we stayed in the Kensington Tara Hotel, Kensington High Street, went went for our first meal out in London to Pizza Hut. <laughs> <laughs> really glamorous. I heard some like Leicester. Well, I mean, that was scary for us. That felt like smashing time. You know, me and Mandy sitting there going, oh, we've got to pay the bill now. <laughs> you know, just kind of, we were like real small town girls. So it was a real education, life education. So that's why I like all those kind of films because they really, um, you know, they really reflect that kind of work growing up in, in the North. It's not London. It's not where everything's happening. It's not yeah. swinging by any means. So that's, it's just in me. You know, it's just in me to like that kind of thing. I get it. Oddly enough, I, I come from a, a proper working class background, but in the South, but I, I, I'm not wedded to that kind of kitchen sink stuff Yeah. for this particular reason. I, I don't want to see real life. I think that's why I'm not wedded to reality TV shows. If I want to see real life, I'll go outside, go down, go down to the shops or get on the bus or the train to see real people. When I, when I, when I'm on television, I want to see stars basically. Yeah. That's my kind of, which is why I suppose I, I'm not really interested in movies, Jane, unless there's vampires, car chases, zombies, 
yeah. or exorcisms or ghosts and stuff like that or superheroes you know yeah. and i remember bob monkhouse saying when chaplin starring robert downey jr came out once again spotting talent said that guy will go far he is marvelous and one of the great regrets amongst the two million regrets i have that bob monkhouse is no now no longer with us to see your success and to a certain extent mine is that he would have loved to have seen the success that Robert Downey Jr. is now enjoying because, yeah. because Robert had that downtime. And now as a consequence of Iron Man, suddenly he's, he's top of the tree yeah. again. And that would have that would have brought Bob Monkhouse enormous joy. That's just me going off on a riff because I just thought of it. And I, I wanted to share it with you. <laughs> there, can be, there can be too much reality. Um, I love Ken Loach and Mike Lee and all those kind of things, but the more recent Ken Loach things uh, were Sorry We Missed You and that kind of thing, which is about careers and stuff. And fantastic, worthy, worthy films, but they're a bit too real for me. I can't watch recent ones. So I think the 60s, 50s and 60s ones, that's a bit like Tony Pitts who wrote um, Funny Cow, mm. who's in Line of Duty and was an Amadeus things. Um, he said, it's time to, on Instagram, uh, I think it was This Is My Street, which was on Talking Pictures again the other night with June Ritchie, very working class 60s film. Um, and Tony Pitts, I said, I love looking at the shops and the, uh, it's the, it's the, what they're wearing and what's in the houses and it's time travel. And that's what Tony Pitts said, it's time travel. Yes. That's, that really tickles me. I just love that. At the same time, I find some of the 40s films, I can't go too far back because it's a bit too 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 removed. I can't go that far back. So I don't like so much modern day realism. Um, it's it's nostalgic. Yes. Realism. It's yeah. seeing what my mum and dad might have worn at the time and what, what cigarettes they would have smoked and what they'd have bought from the corner shop. Yeah, so I understand. Really. But I'm, I'm not a sci-fi fan. Mandy is, or my brother is, but I'm not really a sci-fi fan. Don't mind a bit of fantasy like... His dark materials, Harry Potter kind of thing, that, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I'm not really a sci-fi or a vampire, and I'm a wuss, so I can't really watch gory horror films. <laughs> <laughs> the Exorcist, I can just about do, but you know, can't. Don't like gore. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when I think of it, you mentioned Funny Cow. You were in Funny Cow, weren't you, with Maxine Peake? Yeah, just one one scene. Um, did the audition. Director Adrian Shergold, who I found out later, is in. Um, oh, what's the Quentin Crisp film with John Hurt? I never remember the name of it. Oh, yes. Uh, Sting wrote some lyrics, an Englishman yeah. in New York, an alien yeah. in New York. It's called The Naked Civil Servant. Naked Civil Servant. So Adrian Shergold was one of the kind of queenie characters in The Naked Civil Servant in the cafe where uh, John Hurt goes in with all his pink eye shadow on his hair. He's one of the kind of other, other camp fellas in there. Oh. And, you know, it, I, so I was really impressed afterwards to realise that oh, that was on Talking Pictures as well, actually. So Adrian Shergold was, 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 is an ex-actor and he was directing Funny Cow. He was brilliant. And so it was only at the audition when I started talking about my stand-up past he suddenly perked up, you know, and it was only for a tiny little, like two, two words kind of, you know, part. And he suddenly got really interested and he ended up casting, you know, Bobby Nutt, um, who's a comedian, you know, lots of comics, mm. Jim, Jim, Jim Wire, Big Reads, you know, people like mm. that. So uh, I think I got the part because it was a stand-up and it was literally one scene. It was two sentences with, with Maxine Peake in these awful 60s flats that they'd found in Leeds and Bermontoffs. Yeah. Sorry if you live there, but <laughs> they were kind of 60s, very, very, very turquoise in the corridors, and, you know, really good, good recce that they'd done there. So it was literally like two lines, but I got it because it was a stand-up, really. So he, he, he got, he got, he was quite tickled by casting stand-ups in that. Funny Cow was was fairly recently, wasn't it? Was in the last yeah. 
few years. Four years ago. Yeah. So let's talk about what you're doing now. You went to art school and you got your BA, BSc in art. So you got your degree. And now you're embarking on a career of artwork, creating um, um so you got your degree so now you're embarking on an artistic career uh as a crafter and as a painter uh and to a certain extent a model maker i guess if you're a talented person a multi-skilled you're never going to be a, you you're never going to be the person to put your feet up and say well i've had a good run that's it for me you're always going to be a grafter aren't you yeah, I think it's just just in me to do it. But I, I, partly, Colin, I'm driven by not wanting to work for somebody else. <laughs> That's my main drive. I love being self-employed with all its hardships sometimes. I absolutely love not answering to any. Obviously, you're answering to your customers because you have a deadline and they've paid for something or whatever. But, um, no, I lo- I, I'm really unhappy when I'm in. I don't, I, by a, jo- a job, I don't mean storylining for Emmerdale being mm. production secretary and countdown I, every job i've had in tv behind the scenes or, or whatever i've loved you know corey that isn't a job that's just enjoyable you know acting on corey so it's the kind of and i have done menial jobs and i've worked in shops and, and things like that so i don't ever want to do uh, that again so that's what drove me about five years ago um i had been um a an assistant manager at chari- their charity shop for hospices, so a great, great cause. And I was, I was doing the vintage part of it, you know, so again, my interest, the 50s and 60s, so now I've got all about the clothes and everything. So it was kind of in my in my um, area, and I mm. love love secondhand shopping anyway. I'm just, just fascinated. Um, so, and it was just, doing that was great, but I just wanted to be my own boss, basically. So, and it's not the first time I've made a living out of art and craft because Mandy and I, Mandy had gone to art college as well. So even when we lived in Liverpool, we started our own business then and it was called Something Else, named after an Eddie Cochran song. And we were artists and we did murals in, in pubs and got a Prince's Trust grant, met, met Prince Charles and stuff. So we did all that in, wow. in the 80s. Yeah. So um, I had a history of liking being self-employed it's not always possible but so i've built this up from sort of 2015 and it's you know it's it pays my bills <laughs> and it's <laughs> and it's going great guns i mean you're yeah. what you call faux taxidermy which yeah. are which is making the heads of hares and badgers and bears and just recently you've done pigs for, <laughs> for wall mounting made out of beautiful beautiful fabrics Uh, very often tweed sometimes tartan they really are stunning and i would urge anyone uh listening now to uh, you give me the details jane in a moment to go and see uh, well i think if you if you go to instagram or twitter or facebook and type in jane tunney cliff you'll see jane's beautiful beautiful making uh, they, are they hard to do? How do you start doing that stuff? Oh my God, the first ones I made, the first hairs I made were just horrific. I found a picture today. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just a learning curve, isn't it? You just you just get better. I'm, I'm constantly improving the way I make them, whether they make them lighter or, you know, less to, less to cost posting to post and things. Um, I, ju- I just, um, I'll start that again. I'm, I'm constantly in trying to improve the speed of the how I make them so it's less labor intensive because that's the worst thing about them they are labor they're hand sewn so they're labor intensive so anything I can do to cut half an hour off that time is you know because they take hours and some of them take weeks um so I'm, I'm constantly 
constantly evolving and improving them um but that it keeps you keeps you um you know sharp yes you're active. i'm always looking at pinterest and what other people are doing and yeah. um you know I, I i don't like the term full taxidermy because it kind of can put people off but it, there's kind of animal friendly textile sculptures so they look realistic but they may have velvety fur or faux fur on them but it's usually tartan and tweed and wool and mm. again that's that's something that's come from this area because we're a wool producing district or we were yeah they're so vivid but also what what are brilliant as well are your your caricature your paint your paintings and your caricatures you launched a line of mugs with great cory stars yeah. uh, on the side you uh, you've painted caricatures of all the great comedians yeah and so there's no limit to what you can do with a sewing a sewing machine a needle or a paintbrush i think it's brilliant i'm just i'm so pleased to be to be making a living at doing something that I love you know and yeah. it's, it's just it, it's I'm sure you're like this because you're always uh, I've got a friend in France called Anne and her, her her screen name used to be Anne Fiddles with Bits and that's me to a T I can't like you said you can't keep still I'm sure you when you're not writing or doing your podcast you're always building something steampunk in your your office and stuff so it's that thing kind of I can't yeah. keep still I can't, yeah. I can't just sit and watch I, I start twitching if I start to sit and watch the telly you yeah. know Maybe an hour of line of duty, but then after that, I want to be doing something again. You know? I, I agree with that. <laughs> and where you're better than me, it, well, where you're better than me, full still better than me, full stop. <laughs> but another another way, an area in which you're better than me is, is your use of social media, because you are very, very, very good at putting your work on Face and Twitter and Insta. I admire that enormously, your, your sheer volume of output to put your wares out there. I think that's brilliant. You think so? I don't think I do enough. I've got there are people I know who who do similar things that are just fantastic at it. So I I, I go through phases of where basically when I finish something, I think if I'm happy enough with it, I think oh, I'll put that on. But as soon as you do post on Instagram, it just generates so many more sales. Mm -hmm. So it's purely driven by you know you need to keep putting fresh fresh images out there and. Um, especially Instagram these days, more than Twitter or Facebook or anything. I've got a Facebook page as well, which has got some lovely followers on that. Mm. But um, yeah, Instagram is really powerful these days. So um, I'm not got behind the whole story thing. I'm trying to, but, you know, doing a story with music. Mm. <laughs> I'm a bit, bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> I must, but yeah, I must follow your lead because I know in uh, my associates and and mark and, and lucy so you've got to instagram more you've got to tweet more. i've got nothing to say well just say something about the books for goodness sake yeah. so I, I shall follow your lead i shall take your i should take your advice and follow your lead and pursue my social media up, and upgrade that enormously i think if you're a writer it's a bit harder because it's not as mine are quite visual things so apart from putting your book on your book cover on there it's like for instagram it's not that easy for you to promote it without being quite repetitive because it's a book cover or you could advertise your website or you know or, or the conventions i suppose are good aren't they they the really are yeah and and yeah. as you pointed out i love making the steampunk props i yeah. love I, at the moment i'm working on a steampunk um rifle to, 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 to bring out a modern rifle yeah. drag it back into the kind of steampunk victorian era and i love that kind of stuff i'll tell you what it does jade it enables me to 
go back to the days when I used to make airfix airfix kits as a kid. My and brother so, did that, so I totally understand. <laughs> he so, was an airfix maker. Yeah, suddenly I've got a reason to get the glue out and stuff, oh, a legitimate yeah. reason, professional yeah. reason. But I, I really I love steampunk, and like, as you know, I used to make steampunk jewellery. And I just love, you know, so I've done the Howard Steampunk Convention and things like that. Just looking at the steampunk people, the amount of effort they put into their outfits, their hair, their, the, the, you know, weapons or whatever, the, the, the characters that they've created. You know, they're just a whole, it's like a whole other fantasy world, isn't it? They're all kind of authors in a way. Yes. They're all authors, all steampunk yeah. authors. Um, um, and steampunk would suit you, Jane, because it, it, it encompasses every area of creativity. It's fashion, it's writing, it's painting, it's making. Mm-hmm. Um, so when next I'm up north, to use that dreadful generic expression, but next time I'm your, your neck of the woods, I'll let you know, because the steampunk community I have found is the most generous, friendly bunch of people you'd ever wish to meet. I, I found myself in a position whereby when when I stopped writing comedy, because basically I, I, everyone I was writing for was dead. It's the truth. But, but also I didn't quite really know what I was allowed to write about and rah, rah, rah. So I decided that I would write a book and it, it developed into a steampunk series of novels. And when I kind of pitched up the first time, uh, what I didn't want was the steampunk community to think, oh, yeah, his comedy career is all over. He's trying to hitch his <laughs> wagon to our horse now. Yeah. And so I went in very, very gently. And I like to yeah. think they didn't realize, oh, he's a beginning beast. Look what he's done in the past. But actually, yeah. actually now I'm, I'm mercifully, I've, I've, after many years, I've been accepted. But the steampunk community are the most creative, nice yeah. people you could ever wish to meet. So when I'm up. People like Gary Nichols, I love. Yeah. Gary Oh, what a lovely man. I'm so talented as well. So many good photographers and, yeah, just Brilliant crazy, crazily creative, all of them. Brilliant photographer. And so, as I say, when I'm up, I'll, I'll let you know. We'll, uh, I'll introduce you to the steampunk community. Oh, yeah, I'd love um, to. If we wanted to have a look at your magnificent artwork and your terrific uh, wall-mounted animals, uh, where would we go? Have you got a website? Anything you want um, to tell us about in that direction? Sure. I mean, I have a website for Crafted Creatures, which are the, the animal-friendly full taxidermy that I make. So it's craftedcreatures.com. And there are links to the Etsy shop and the Folksy shop on there. I have two shops, one's America-based, one's Sheffield-based. Um, so craftedcreatures.com. Um, I don't have – I need to update my um, art site, but it's basically folksy.com forward slash shops forward slash voodooville, one word, voodooville. Wonderful. Oh yes. man, I love Voodooville. That yeah, is... I've had that for ages, and I'm holding on to it because it's become quite a. a, a when I looked at, I, I used it years ago, and then sort of didn't didn't use the shop that much, but it was still in existence. Went back to do it, and I thought there's loads of Voodoovilles when you go now. You know, bands and stuff, and films and things. So it's, it's obviously a, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I got into something. something very lucrative there, but yeah. Most definitely. What I'll do, if I may, I'll post all the links when we uh with all the information uh i would urge anyone listening to google uh no go to youtube and search for jane tunnicliffe and watch those clips of jane in action in coronation street some of the most hilarious coronation street scenes you'll ever see with jane and wendy uh <laughs> and also jane with peter k uh you're in for a treat i promise you and of course go to the, go to the websites and have a look at jane's wonderful stuff 
I think there's a couple of good Lily Savage clips on YouTube as well from Lily Live. Got to be done. One or two. One or two. <laughs> what I would describe as essential viewing. I've taken up so much of your time. I've taken up an hour, more than an hour and a bit. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Colin. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoy our friendship and I look forward to seeing you very, very soon. And, and me too. Lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Uh, taking a break next week, folks, but we'll be back with Series 3 uh, with um, actually a rather nifty guest. But thanks, Jane. <laughs>